You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. episode 112 with Dr. Anita Federici. All right, guys, this one is a big one. But before I talk about Anita or about our topic, if you are looking for a way to take a lot of the ideas that we talk about in this podcast, like deepening your relationship with yourself, especially when you're struggling with your relationship with food, head on over to the show notes, grab your free copy of my journal prompts. There are so many different prompts in there to get you thinking about and hopefully writing down how you can understand yourself and your relationship with food a little bit more deeply and get this, all this information we talk about as it connects a little bit more to your life, you as an individual, so that you can apply more of the things that we talk about to your life and it doesn't stay just in your ears. All right. So first, a little bit about Anita. So Dr. Anita Federici is a clinical psychologist, and she's the owner of the Center for Psychology and Emotion Regulation. She serves as an adjunct faculty position at York University and is a distinguished fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders, which is actually the place we met. Anita has lectured, given hundreds of lectures, we're not just talking about a few here and there, hundreds of lectures, workshops, trainings on We'll t- she'll talk a little bit more about this later, but men DBT, which is her thing. And just like ways of treating eating disorders in a much more innovative, individual-based way. Her work has been presented at international conferences, published in peer-reviewed journals, book chapters. I mean, like <laughs> anything you think of, she's done it. Now, if you know Anita or you know anything about my conversations with Anita up until now, she is very much involved and almost spearheading this mission to get more information, more accurate information out there about MAID, which is medical assistance in dying, as it relates to eating disorders and what has been termed, or I don't know if it's official, but what people have been calling, quote, terminal eating disorders. This is obviously a really loaded topic. So if it's something that feels a lot to you and you're not ready or interested to hear about this, shut it off and come back next week. We won't talk about this next week, I promise. So just knowing where you're at, what your interests are, but also what you can handle, make sure that you you know think about yourself first before you listen to this. We're not talking about this in a quote triggering way, I don't think, but you know you best. So of course, during our conversation, we're going to talk about all of these things, like what they are, how did it come to be that we're in this place, talking about terminal illness within the mental health world. We're talking about eating disorders and mortality. Take that out. 
we're talking about severe and enduring eating disorders. We're talking about medical assistance and dying. We're talking about palliative care and harm reduction and all of these like really big, scary things that unfortunately we do need to talk about. But I think that what you'll hear over and over and over again in our conversation is that even when there are hard conversations to have or complicated emotional conversations or even technically difficult conversations, these are not black or white topics in any way that you look at this. If you look about the ethics, if you look about even the definitions of the words that we're using, none of it is black and white. And what Anita and I are focusing on here, or, or a point that we emphasize a lot, is that we need to do this. We need to talk about it. We need to write about it, present on this in a very specific, nuanced, exploratory, and curious way. We can't jump to conclusions. We can't assume what somebody else might be thinking. We we can't take anything for granted. We have to approach this in the most gentle and open and honest way because otherwise we're being careless. Otherwise, this is a more harm than good kind of conversation. And there's a lot of legal stuff and and legislature and Anita will talk about that a little bit. It's going on, although she's based in Canada. So I don't know how much of that applies to those of you who live in the US, but it's getting really sticky out there. And we can't fall back on, there's been research to show this. And so A plus B equals C. It's never going to be like that. And what our conversation today highlights is all the nuance and all the complexity. Obviously, this conversation barely even scratches the surface of this topic. So what I'm hoping from you as you listen to our conversation is bear with us. If there is a point in which you don't understand what the heck we're saying, stay with it for another few minutes. See if you can grasp something. If there's a point at which you feel so pissed off, like how can they possibly be saying this? Stay with us for another five minutes. See if you can bear with us just so that you can stay in, remain in the ambiguity, in the gray. And then when you finish, come out. And we are both asking you from the bottom of our hearts, reach out and let us know what you think. Because this is the beginning of the conversation. This is by no means the end. And even when anybody makes any sort of definitive statements, this is never, never a definitive topic. This isn't black and white. This is gray. We're all figuring this out. And I think maybe for someone like me or maybe someone like Anita, we sort of just like thrown into this because we had to. And then we're trying to swim upstream with it. You can still join us in this conversation, even if it's something that doesn't particular pertain to you. Although honestly, I hope that every single person I'm talking to right now, this doesn't pertain to and that it is a purely intellectual feat. But what I'm asking for is to join us in this complicated, sticky, scary conversation so that we can actually provide the resources that people need when they feel like they don't have the resources. And now here's my conversation with Anita. Thank you so much for joining us, Anita. I'm I'm really excited. I mean, we've been saying we're so excited for months. We've been talking about this for months. <laughs> we're finally yeah. we're catching each other on the air. But obviously we 
couldn't possibly capture all of our conversations. And this is massive, massive topic. We're talking about really hard topics. And maybe before we jump into the specifics of what it is and how did it come to be that this exists and what's the history of it, maybe just start off as a disclaimer. What makes this particular topic so controversial? Well, for, okay, first of all, thank you for having me, okay? Because I have been wanting to talk with you about this and I, I just appreciate the opportunity uh, to do this. Why is this controversial? I mean, made made medical assistance in dying is not a new construct. I mean, you know, if we look back at other terminal conditions, we talk about terminal cancer, terminal other physical ailments for which we know there is no cure and people can suffer in, in tremendous ways, you know, medical assistance in dying has been utilized around the world with different controversies for many years as a way of, of sort of ethically, compassionately and humanely allowing people to have a dignified way of dying, uh, you know. And so the controversy that brought us together was whether and how that relates to mental health. Mm -hmm. And then specifically eating disorders. And can you apply made as it was originally mm, developed, right? Let's say for something like terminal cancer, can you apply it with the same certainty and the same parameters to something like a severe, a quote unquote, severe and persistent eating disorder? I mean, that's the controversy. Are these equal enough? Is it ethical. I mean, this is why people are are concerned. Mm -hmm. Therein lies our entire conversation. <laughs> there is the podcast. <laughs> the end. Well, so take us back to a little bit of history. I know you started with MAID was started for terminal illness like cancer and other medical illnesses. How did it come to be that it applies to mental illness? What's the, what's the history there? In all disclosure, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a medical physician. So I, I just want to be really clear that I feel like I'm still learning, even though I've been trying to study this for, for a couple of years now, which is just a drop in the bucket. Um, and so I just want to be really thoughtful about the limited nature, perhaps, of my knowledge. I don't want to overstate anything. My understanding is that Medical assistance in dying has existed in other countries for some psychiatric or med mental health conditions longer than it is being proposed. I'm thinking here in North America. And so, so there is a, a history. And I think the idea was similar in that people are suffering. I would find it, it difficult to find anyone in the world that hasn't either themselves or knows a family member or somebody who has suffered tremendously with a mental health condition, right? Yeah. For which modern science or modern psychology, we just don't have a way of alleviating such suffering. And so the yeah. ethical yeah. question becomes, why should there be a difference between, quote unquote, mental illness versus physical illness? And what is the autonomy of the individual to choose whether their quality life is enough for them to exist? So, I, so it's been this kind of process of trying to determine how do we make an equivalent uh, in mental health. So the history is still a bit of a mystery to me in because there's different things that go on in different countries. What I can tell you here, and I'd be curious what you think in the U.S., here in Canada, it feels like it 
as a psychologist practicing in Canada, it literally feels like it snuck up behind me. Like I didn't know it was coming, like some, yep. <laughs> like out of a horror movie in a way, right? Like mm-hmm. nobody talked to me and I've talked to my colleagues about this and, and uh, I've got research on this right now, but no one from my college or my colleagues, nobody said, Hey, in a few years, this is going to happen. It, it sort of said, you know, it was last year. They said, as of March 17th, 2023, this is just going to be accessible for people with mental health conditions. None of us have had any training on what this means and how to handle it and how to talk to people and what are the criteria even. So it was postponed for a year in Canada because too many professionals and people with lived experience said, hold on. And yet, I, in my opinion, I have seen absolutely nothing evolve in the last year while they put it on hold. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to again be eligible in another three months. What has been the trajectory in the United States? I don't think there there's no trajectory. I, I really don't think that. I mean, maybe I don't understand the intricacies and I'm certainly not really interested in bureaucracy. So I just like turn away. <laughs> But I do think that a lot of, first of all, the entire idea of MAID as it applies to severe and enduring eating disorders, use the metaphor of like coming up, sneaking behind you. But like, I feel like I was just slapped in the face. I was like, hi, I'm here. I wasn't here yesterday, but like now I'm in the middle of everything. So I do think that it was just, it turned everything on its head. And I also think this is something we've talked about in the past, the change in research and the criteria for publishing a paper or whatever you want to call it has significantly changed, which of course impacts how policy is going to be made. But we have just people writing in left and right and and publications were never like that. And so it's just really complicated. So I just, I don't, you know, I don't think there is a trajectory. <laughs> but I think Regardless of, because I agree with you, like I, I will fully own my, um, like I said, my limited knowledge. I, 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 you know, what I do know collectively from the majority of people that I speak to, which is probably a biased sample in, in its own right, but either way, everybody seems to reflect the same thing. There's this degree of sort of uh, anxiety, sometimes panic. Not even that people disagree, it's that people, nobody's taught, like as a psychologist, where people are going to come to me and ask me to determine this criteria, no one's, there's been no training, no talk about it. You know, you say, how am I, how do I even think about this? Like it's, it's, and Mm -hmm. so I think that's one of the, really, I think that's kind of an interesting thing in its own right. And then in the eating disorder world, what really brought this to a head was the publication by Gadiani and and her authors proposing criteria for terminality in anorexia or the concept in and of itself of terminality when it comes to eating disorders and then trying to define mm-hmm. that. I think that's what just exploded uh, sort of the concern, both ethically and otherwise, in our field. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's talk about, obviously, part of the issue is that there is no definition, but let's talk about, for people who have never heard this before. What is a severe and enduring eating disorder? What is terminal anorexia? What do we even mean when we say something like that? Well, that's a show in its own right. (laughs) Right now. This is true. Only because I also have concerns about the way we label people. So personally, I don't like this idea of who's severe and enduring because I I think 
the people that are labeled severe and enduring, in my, in my opinion, for the most part, are people that have been misunderstood. Uh, they are people for whom treatments mm-hmm. have never been designed. And I say, well, you call them severe and enduring, but yes, they, they have severe symptoms. They have enduring symptoms. And it's also, you can't separate that from the history of how eating disorder treatment has evolved and what it is and what it isn't. So I, I have, I get a little bit, I think, defensive, even when I hear such terms. That said, I think the field would agree that when 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 people talk about severe and enduring, we are referring to a group of people, I think regardless of diagnosis, who have had an eating disorder for on and off or or consistently for many, many years with very little reprieve, respite. Usually these are folks that struggle with tremendous physical complications, uh, psychological complications. They have a very, usually a a difficult quality of life, although I wouldn't say they they can't have a quality of life, but these are usually folks that don't respond to standard treatments. Uh, They often have a lot of co-occurring things going on. Like, so these to me are like poor souls out there who who really need different type of, of approaches, but they don't respond to the standard approaches. And so They've struggled for many, many years and, and are in tremendous pain. There's no doubt about that. So when the idea is even proposed that somebody is struggling with severe and enduring eating disorder, we introduce this idea of made. For somebody in this position, we have no idea what each individual might be thinking or feeling when hearing this, and, and each person is different. But for a lot of people, we know the reaction is, oh, so that's it? You're giving up on me? Like. Well, you're talking about the 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 harm, but this is the problem with labeling things like severe and enduring mm-hmm. or terminality. You know, I had somebody a long time ago, well, that long ago, who reached out to me because their provider had said, you know, after many years, said, I think you have something called severe and enduring anorexia, gave this person a, an article, and the person reached out to me because it left her feeling so completely hopeless. And she said, you know, I've been in eating disorders treatment for years. Nobody's ever talked to me about something like this. And she also had difficulty with the way even severe and enduring, again, was defined in the articles given to her. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think you're speaking to the the high risk of harm that is caused when you start to put labels like terminal or severe and enduring, because it is related to the notion of, of, well, you can't really do anything. It's sort of like a hopeless some people say to me, well, Anita, there are some people you just that we can't help. And I say, well, that's pr- that's probably true. I mean, I could say that's true of any illness or ailment. But I said, mm-hmm. but I think that I cannot separate the made or the terminality argument from the massive failings within the the, the current systems of care. So for me, as somebody that does a type of DBT for people with what would be called severe and enduring eating disorders who get better, you know, I say, well, could it be that? They wouldn't be severe and enduring. They wouldn't be, you know, in this situation if there were other alternative ways of working with people available, right? So I I think that we have to be very careful when we have this conversation because people do feel hopeless. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that there's a variety of different reactions. Some people might be like, finally, someone understands me. Mm -hmm. But I think that's sort of highlighting the complexity of this, that we don't know what an individual's response is. We don't know what an individual clinician's way of delivering this information or what's going on for them. We don't know. And when we just say, here are the terms, 
here are the proposals, then we just, we, we cut out the entire conversation. The major problem that I had with the uh, Gaudi Money paper that proposed the criteria, the four criteria, the, the major problem I had was that, well, I had many problems with it, but the major one was, <laughs> was that it wasn't based on a robust data set. Like I, I, I thought, yeah. how, how, how can you propose things like this without key stakeholders contributing to a, a well-defined, well-thought-out, mindful process. Like something like this is so obviously has such potential to cause harm that I, I was just struck by the way that it was done. Like it's not that it should, because then people say, well, it, I'm not against having the conversations. I never, I've, I'm never, I've never been an extremist in any way, shape or form. I do think people suffer. I do think we need to have these hard conversations. And I think those conversations have to be had by experts, by experience, people um, and caregivers, uh, other healthcare professionals, ethicists. You know, to me, that would have been, I think, a, a more compassionate way of saying, hey, we need to talk about this. Um, mm-hmm. So what happened was, and I think that the backlash has been not just that it was proposed, but how how it was proposed. And that, that is what I think was so disturbing to so many people. Uh, And that actually increased the sense of hopelessness or again, the misunderstanding of, right. Like it's absolutely. So that was concerning. Yeah. Yeah. Just one thing popped into my mind. When we say made, we are not saying palliative care. Uh, And I just want to differentiate that. Can you talk to that for a second? Yes. So, you know, and again, these are, I, I, I really had to take a deeper dive. I'm like, what is palliative care? What is medical assistance in dying? You're like, you know, what, we're, we're therapists? Like what? Yeah. Like, <laughs> as, as, I mean, no one ever has talked to me about these things. And I, I, I think that one of the things I, I really appreciated about being invited to talk with you is if anything, even if we just give people a clearer view of, of what are the definitions and why is this controversial? I think that's a good start. So palliative care is actually quite a broad term used to help people who are suffering, who are not, I guess I'd say, quote unquote, actively trying to get better. Like they don't have to be actively in CBT or actively in, you're trying to improve their quality of life. You, mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to, you know, help them maintain some joy and meaning, purpose without having to push them to meet some other criteria for what it means to be healed, recovered, right? So, but the eating disorder field, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that very well. And and for, for good reason, you know, we don't want people to die. Eating disorders are really scary. Uh, very high mortality rates. Like I, I can understand the evolution of how some of what exists in eating disorders exists. However, there's always been sort of a, a negative view of what would be today, called, you know, harm reduction or palliative models or not necessarily pushing everybody to gain a certain amount of weight. Like there, that's always been seen as sort of a, you know, a risky, unsubstantiated way of helping people. I, I disagree mm-hmm. with that, but that's sort of the way it is. So palliative is is a way of working with people to help support them so they have a better quality of life. Uh, made medical assistance in dying is is once you have reached um, 
agreement and there's criteria for how you reach agreement. But this is someone that is actively pursuing death. Mm-hmm. Right? So so the idea here is is that, you know, um, trained physicians would would assess and and approve of someone's uh, quote unquote terminal status and help them end their lives. You know, hospice is sort of to me, and maybe I'm wrong here, so I hope, you know, I'll be curious what you think. Hospice to me is sort of in between those two things, right? So hospice is, you know, you you know, you think hospice people think about cancer treatment, right? Like somebody, you know, they're not mm-hmm. going to get better. Um, you know that they probably don't have a lot of time left. Um, and hospice care is usually, you know, when you bring someone into a space where you try to ease their suffering as they reach the end of their life. I didn't know that there was much of a difference between palliative care and hospice. I should, I should I learn been, more. I, well, this is, again, I, you like, know, me neither. I'll be honest with you. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I'd be curious what your listeners think. And, and, you know, but that is my understanding of sort of, it's almost like a continuum, right? Like, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there's like sort of if I use eating disorder language, I would say, OK, you've got like CBT and FBT over here, which is kind of really change based, active, driven, mm-hmm. pursuing, quote, recovery, pursuing a definition of recovery. I, I, right. I don't quote unquote. That. Yep. But it's not my <laughs> definition of recovery. But. So but you've got those and those have saved lives. There's no doubt like this is not an yeah. anti-CBT or anti-FBT conversation. Those treatments have saved many lives, have been very helpful to a large number of people, and they are not enough for everybody that suffers. And so right. they can't be. I mean, it's hubristic to think that one or two treatments is going to be enough. I, I think that's not it's not how the literature plays out. But then I think of palliative as this kind of model where we're not actually pursuing death, but we're not pursuing necessarily one of those change-based treatments. We're working on, you know, maybe we're like, for me, that's like, you're, we're working on staying alive usually. Yeah. Uh, staying out of pain, maybe staying out of the hospital. Cause usually that, you know, it's hard to have a great quality of life when you're in and out of a merge or, you know, so True. help people sort of maintain a, a level of stability medically or otherwise, and then help them, you know, maybe find other ways of having um, peace or safety or security without imposing that it has to be this way or that way. But I, I, to me, palliative doesn't, doesn't mean that you're pursuing death either. Yeah. And whereas hospice is, we, we know, we know, this person is not going to, you know, and it's, again, it's easier for me to think about that when I think about things like cancer, when mm-hmm. we can clearly see, you know, this is where the tumor is. This is what's happening with the body. This is what's happening with the systems within the body. You can't do that with mental health in the same way. It's very right. confusing, very complicated. Right. Well, that was one of the complicated ideas in that if you did absolutely nothing with somebody who has a severe and enduring eating disorder, whatever that is, Will they inevitably die like somebody with a terminal cancer? It's no. it's not it's not a sure thing. And so it's it's complicated. There's it is complicated. And I think there are two different things, even in what you just said. One is can you predict death in someone with a severe or enduring eating disorder? And abs- absolutely mm-hmm. no, you can't. Oh my god, um, you know how many times I've heard the six month thing? <laughs> well, you know what's interesting? Uh my colleague and I 
have been collecting data, we have over 300 and I don't know, 30 responses to the proposed criteria. We have 330 responses per uh, criteria set. So we're combing through this data and it is like, it brings me to tears and not because, not because I always agree with what people, because it's so emotional and painful and genuine. Mm -hmm. And I wish that had been the start of the conversation. I I wish that before Gaudiani had published it, that there would have been this kind of oversight to sort of talk to people. I feel very honored to be able to bring that data. We're not there yet. (laughs) But but what I can tell you is that people absolutely do not agree with the predictability of death, nor something like a six-month criteria, nor do they agree that, and I'm using Gaudiani's um, definition, she's speaking about anorexia and she says, well, people with anorexia reach the, you know, they have like a hunger strike and, and that that's where her six months comes from. Like, yes, if someone isn't eating period for six, and I'm like, who? I've never worked with someone. I've been 25 years in, I've never worked with somebody who just stops eating for six months. Yeah. So I don't even sure who that applies to. So, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm kind of like, well, that makes no sense. So I, so, the, so, I think on one hand, the predictability is a fallacy and nor is it evidence-based to suggest that you can predict who there's lots of people with, I know that would be classified as severe enduring who have lived, are still living after many, many years, who would, would say they have actually a decent quality of life. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other piece about like, and there's great suffering and there is no evidence-based treatment for anorexia, for example. So that's really the hinge. The point is like, who gets to decide how long somebody lives with a severe condition? Uh, that's a different issue uh, that still hasn't been defined. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I can argue with the criteria, but it still doesn't satisfy the people who write to me and say, I have been at this for 15 years and I am broken and my bones are sore and I'm in tremendous pain and I've been through everything. Like, you know, like it, it's, it's devastating. Who am I to say what you should or shouldn't do? I just want to protect, nor am I here to say that. I'll never say that. But I want to protect people that I think are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things coming out of our data set is that people are worried that criteria like this will mean that people who are quote unquote complex or severe, that this will be a sort of government socially approved way of giving up on them. Yeah. Which makes things basically just set in stone and much harder to work differently because everyone's saying, well, this is the proposed treatment for this disease like any other medical illness. So just do it with like zero nuance or understanding, which is impossible to look at a situation in a two-dimensional way, a situation like this. I don't know that we'll ever arrive. Like, until we, I don't know if we'll ever have the same sort of certainty we have with medical or physical conditions, right? Like, I don't think as a field, and I just mean mental health in general, and I don't even mean eating disorders, but I'm not sure that we will ever arrive at a place where we go, oh, that's when someone with schizophrenia is terminal. That's when someone with borderline personality disorder, that's when somebody with trauma, like, I don't know that we can get there. But I do believe that our responsibility is, A, to make sure that we are talking to enough people from a variety of backgrounds 
Mm-hmm. And I also mean culture, gender, intersecting identities, like that all needs to be on the table when we talk about ending somebody's life. Yeah. I think we have, we have an ethical duty to protect the most vulnerable in society. Otherwise, MAID could be used as a way of, um, it's like a eugenics movement, right? Ah, you're complicated. You're difficult. Yeah. I wanted to back up for a second. You were talking about the continuum. Um, the We sort of classified like CBT, FBT approaches sort of actively pursuing treatment side and then palliative care somewhere in the middle where you're not really pursuing death or active treatment and somewhere in there perhaps before palliative care I guess if we're going to insert it on the continuum is harm reduction I love the idea but there's obviously a lot of flag for the even just proposing this idea but can you a just share what it is and then where it fits in here what harm reduction is like what yeah so harm reduction is a broad term that is used to describe any intervention that works with an individual in a way that the change process can be could be slow, could be uh, more slower paced. Usually what we're trying to do is keep people, like I said before, alive, um, reduce suffering, um, you know, improve relationships, improve meaning making. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're applying, um, you know, that you have to be on this medication, you have to eat in this way, you have to gain X amount of weight. I think it's a more collaborative way of meeting people where they are. And there's not one way of doing it. So I've seen I've seen programs all over the world that have done clinical care teams that go out into the community. In Toronto, they were doing this for many years where they would go out in the community. And the idea wasn't to change anybody. The idea was to Uh, check in. Did you need anything? Did you need anything from a medical perspective? Can we help facilitate? You know, if somebody had low electrolytes, we could help facilitate sort of a quick admission so they don't have to spend 14 hours in eMERGE. Can we get you connected with something or somebody, even just a visit, you know? Mm -hmm. But again, the intentionality is very different, right? And so there's all kinds of different ways that you can conceive of offering a more harm reduction approach. You see this in substance abuse, right? Right. You think methadone is harm reduction, mm-hmm. right? You you know, there's different, you say, well, is there a less harmful way of coping? Right. So, you know, this is where I might talk to a client, you know, who says, well, I'm using cannabis every day. Right. And that's how I'm regulating my emotions. Do I love that for you? No, I don't love it for you. Do, does it make sense? Yes. I can understand why you would do that. Is it going to keep you from needing to be in the hospital? If it does, maybe we go with that for now. Mm-hmm. Maybe this yeah. is, but instead of like, but in traditional, let's say eating disorders care, we would say, if you're using substances like that, you're not quote unquote appropriate, right? For eating yeah. disorder treatment. If you're suicidal or you've self-injury, you're not appropriate for. So harm reduction, you know, we have a much more, I would call it dialectical view of, you know, how to be with people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sort of makes me think about I don't want to call it industry, but I'm losing any other words of higher level of care. I guess maybe there's a reason why. And don't get me wrong. I think that higher level of care serves a function. And I think it's really, really important not to say like, well, the hell with higher level of care, whatever. No, no. Because they are really, really valuable for the purpose that they serve. But I get a lot of people who ask me, you know, people who are listening to this right now, 
ask me, how do I make a decision about higher level of care? People are telling me I need to go to higher level of care. People, meaning my team are telling me I, I need to go mm-hmm. to higher level of care, but I'm scared or I really don't want to, or I've tried it before and it didn't work. And people are grappling with this. You know, I've, I've been to higher level of care before and some people have been many times before and, and they're left in this situation where somebody is telling them, well, that's the only solution. And they're like, I've tried this five times. It's not a solution. Where does it leave them? It leaves them feeling hopeless and invalidated and many times blamed like that's, you know, and, and that's not the truth. I think what I say to people, I try to teach my clients that higher levels of care serve a very specific and limited function. They are not going to solve all of your problems. They mm-hmm. really are, and they're mostly medical model. And it's very important. When I train teams, I'm, I I really emphasize the need to educate their clients that there's a big difference between medical treatments and what, what I think of our big capital T treatments, psychological treatments. Like, the, yep. And so yep. most of the time, yes, there may be elements of CBT or DBT skills or FBT in day treatment, in inpatient the the major emphasis of those programs is medical model stabilization. So when a client says to, okay, and here's the other thing that I think is important for people to know. The reason that so many therapists in outpatient say you have to go to a higher level of care is because for a couple of reasons. One, because those are the APA standards. They say, look, if you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you need a higher level of care. Two, most clinicians are not trained or supported to manage the complexity and the multi-problems that that our clients have. So you've got someone that may be medically unstable, they're suicidal, they don't really want to work on on these things right now. A lot of outpatient therapists feel ill-prepared and are worried they're going to cause harm. Mm-hmm. And I guess the third thing would be that up until more recently, there's there really has never been a viable outpatient option for that particular type of patient. So what happens is you, you try to work with someone outpatient. It's not going well. We recommend a higher level of care for various reasons. What I do is I say to my clients, look, if you're going to go to inpatient or day treatment, we have to be really clear what you're going for and what you're not going for. We also, I talk to my clients about how it's very likely that they're going to feel invalidated in those higher levels of care. They are, you know, so what I do is I try to create like a cope ahead plan with people. Mm -hmm. And I say, listen, if you're going to go, you're going to go in, you're going to do what you need to do. Cause I don't want you, if you're dead, I can't help you. So go in, do the stuff I can't do because I'm not a medical provider. Get out and come back to me. Mm -hmm. Right. I actually have more success that way with people rather than not preparing them for the limitations of the system. I have to prepare them for that. But you know me enough to know that one of the things my colleagues and I have developed in response to all of this is what we call MED-DBT. I think that falls on that continuum uh, before palliative, but not CBT and, and FBT. It is a model that is designed for people who are quote unquote have severe enduring presentations who have not responded adequately to standard approaches and our main non-negotiable is if you want to work like for with me we have to agree that staying alive is of primary importance the rest yeah we'll, we'll figure out i don't expect people to start treatment with me aiming for 100 full eating disorder recovery 
I do need us to work on staying alive because if you die over our six months or a year together, it really is going to impact my ability to help you. Seriously. But that's hard. But you, you asked me about harm reduction. And mm-hmm. so I, I say, so my colleagues and I who internationally do med DBT, we have really nice outcomes with the same people who are being considered for made. That's why I get upset as I say, well, you know, uh, one of the proposed criteria for made is that they've had a trial of an evidence-based treatment. I say, well, evidence-based for whom? Yeah. Right. So I say, well, just because they've tried FBT or just because they tried CB or CBTE, those treatments were never tested on nor designed for people with co-occurring trauma, substance use, suicide, self-harm, pervasive emotion regulation difficulties. So how can you qualify that as an evidence-based treatment for that person? Right. And we haven't tested that specific clinician or clinical no. setting either. No. So it, it, it to me, it feels like this is what I worry about is that people who cannot access differential care pathways are going to be funneled into the severe enduring, oh, you've tried, therefore mm-hmm. made. Right. That's that's why I speak about it. If this is not too much of a can of worms to open right now, what does med DBT do that is so transformative for people? Oh, geez, that is a big, that's big. That's a whole <laughs> other show. What I would say as an overview is that it it was designed. Uh, we developed this particular modality for exactly the reasons that we're talking about today. It is, in my opinion, it is um, a very collaborative approach. I think that, and so what it does is it takes sort of the science of what do we know about eating, body image, eating disorders, the neurobiology, and how do we combine that with the science of working with emotion dysregulation, ambivalence, and how do you put those two things together? And so for me, I have this diagram that I show people where for me, when I'm doing med DBT, yes, the eating disorder exists, but it exists in the context of a particular bio temperament that I have to attend to. So if I only focus on eating and weight, I'm missing this whole other side of who that human is across from me. But if I only focus on emotion regulation, I'm missing the entire complexity of what it means to have an eating disorder from a metabolic perspective and a sensory perspective and a perceptual perspective. So med is, I love it. I'm biased because I'm part of the creation of it, but it is this combined formulation, collaboration, co-creation between me and the client in which we are not just working on the eating and how you feel in your body, but we're also working on the pervasive and validating environments the way you have been marginalized, depressed, misunderstood, right? That's all, that's all part of it. We're working on, you know, um, how to understand your emotional system, your sensory system, your perceptual system. And I find that people, like when I go through just the beginning stages with people, the most common piece of feedback I get from clients is, why didn't someone just explain this to me a long time ago? And so I think one of the short answers is that the initial goals in med dbt like i said are not are you going to get to this weight are you going to quote unquote recover as as has been defined in the literature up until today 
can we work together? Can we stay alive long enough to try to see if we can't just build some momentum together and do this differently while targeting these things that have blown up your life in a mm-hmm. way, but it, it's hard to explain it in, in a short, I, I spend days doing trainings with, with people, but that has been my solution to this, this mess that we're in. Yeah. I mean, something that I was thinking about as you were talking, especially, you know, some of the reasons why outpatient teams sometimes suggest higher level of care is because outpatient teams meet with their people once, twice, maybe three times a week. And if you think about somebody who's struggling 24 seven, that's not nearly enough support to help work through. It's painful. It's torturous 24 seven. It's awful. And and it can feel so invalidating to the individual struggling who is desperately needing more help. And the clinician could be giving everything they got. And again, if somebody's at risk of medical instability now because they can't interrupt symptoms, you know, for me, when I've worked outpatient, I've worked across all levels of care. It's really a scary thing when somebody's in a hypokalemic uh, state or they have a very low heart rate. I mean, that's a lot for both the client and the therapist to hold. And at the same mm-hmm. time, I appreciate that that many of our clients, especially if they are more severe and enduring, your, your listeners can't see my air quotes every time I say this stuff. The problem is that those are also the ones that when they go to a higher level of care tend to receive the most invalidation. Yeah. Right. So it's this, I'm like, it's the chicken and the egg. Like, I guess what what I do right at this stage in my career is I work a lot with hospitals and programs trying to change the way that they operate from everything from their inclusion and exclusion criteria to how they talk to people on their wait lists to what do they do when someone just isn't able to respond? And how do you do that? And how do therapists themselves and teams reflect on their own therapy interfering behavior? That's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. But it often feels like I'm trying to turn the Titanic, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a massive, right? It's massive. And so I really feel for people. Like, so this is where I sit with the, I don't have the answer. I don't have the made answer. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't think anybody does. Anybody who's saying that they do probably, you know, doesn't. (laughs) And I don't want to invalidate. I've had people reach out to me sometimes on my posts on Instagram, you know, and they, they sort of, they say, you know, it's upsetting that you're fighting against made because I've been waiting for something like this. And I tell them, like, I literally, my heart breaks because my intention is not to take away something from somebody where this might actually apply. Like, it's not my role. Mm-hmm. I hate that for that person. And I don't want to invalidate the people who are suffering in such substantive ways. Like, I've seen it. I've been with it. It's awful. That's not my intention. My intention is like I said, to protect everybody and to make sure that processes and discussions and trainings happen so that I don't want to make mistakes. And you know what I'll tell you? The last thing I'll say is that in the data set that we have right now, again, still looking at it, but one of the main things that we are seeing is that, you know, people are saying, I would have picked that. I would have picked made a particular time in my struggles. And I'm so glad here I am five, 10 years out. Mm-hmm. I have kids. I have grandkids. Yeah. I'm in school. I'm a therapist. People that say, I am so glad I didn't have that choice because I would have met the criteria and I would have picked it. Like I don't know how to reconcile that. Yeah. But I think if we learn absolutely nothing from this conversation, then I hope we take one thing away that 
if we can step into anyone's shoes, someone debating on one side of made the other side, someone with lived experience who would have taken the opportunity or would like to take the opportunity now versus somebody who feels wildly misunderstood by even having it part of the conversation, we can understand or at least try to understand everybody is coming from a valid perspective. There are multiple truths here. The danger is when we stop seeing the multiple truths. Well said. Well said. Yeah. So now that we've completed the conversation on made, <laughs> I feel like I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> well, let's pause it for now. Let's give our, uh, our listeners an opportunity to write back, see mm-hmm. what they say, and we can always pick this up again and include some of that into our conversation. Absolutely. Like I said, it is just, it's just such a great opportunity to get to talk to you and to be able to talk about such a controversial and emotional topic. I give you a lot of credit. I think it takes a lot of courage to put something out there in the world that garners a lot of attention and and a lot of emotion. But I think that's what we need to do. I think so too. Well, before I let you go, uh, where can our listeners find you? Probably the best place to find me is on Instagram. Uh, That's where I sort of post the most. I do have a Facebook account, but it's, you know, usually Instagram is my go-to. I have a LinkedIn uh, account as well, but I I find that uh, I connect the best with people on Instagram. I think it's Dr. Anita Federici. And I would just, like I said, I don't know if I said it, but I I would encourage people, if, if this is generating thoughts and feelings, I would really encourage you to go and read some of the open access journal articles that are related to the concept of terminality. There have been some brilliant people writing, are highlighting some of the key problems and pointing to uh, directions for change. And and I would encourage you to read those. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Anita. This was really great and always fun to hang out. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.